Chapter 19 of The Necessity of Atheism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Wesseling. The Necessity of Atheism by David Marshall Brooks. Chapter 19, Part 1. The Doom of Religion, The Necessity of Atheism. One should recall the charge of atheism directed against the keenest thinkers of antiquity and the greatest of its moral reformers. But what was personal and incidental in the past, depending largely upon the genius and inspiration of seers and leaders, has now become a social movement as wide as science. James T. Shotwell The drift from God is a movement of events a propulsion of vital experience, not a parade of words to be diverted by other words. Max Carl Otto In the Babylonian and Assyrian mythologies, we have the chief deities as Ishtar, Tammuz, Baal, and Astarte. In the Phrygian religion, we have the goddess Cybele and her husband Attis. Among the Greeks, we have the goddess Aphrodite and the god Adonis. The Persians had their Mithra. Adonis and Attis flourished in Syria. In the Egyptian religion was found the goddess Isis and the god Osiris. The Semites have their Jehovah, the Mohammedans their Allah, and the Christians the goddess Mary, the god the Father, and a son, Jesus. Christianity has divided itself into Catholicism and Protestantism, and when Protestantism gave the right of interpretation of the Bible to each individual, there were evolved such forms of Protestantism as Christian Science, Holy Rollerism, Seventh-day Adventism, Swedenborgianism, and the cults of the Dukhobors, the Shakers, the Mennonites, the Dunkards, and the Salvation Army. In the early days of the church were seen the wrangling of sects, the incomprehensible jargon of Arians, Nestorians, Eutychians, Monotheists, Monophysites, Mariolatrists, etc. Today we behold the incomprehensible jargon of the first-mentioned sects. Christ, born of an Immaculate Virgin, died for mankind, arose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Buddha, who lived over five hundred years before Jesus, was born of the virgin Maya, which is the same as Mary, Maya conceived by the Holy Ghost, and thus Buddha was of the nature of God and man combined. Buddha was born on December 25th. His birth was announced in the heavens by a star, and angels sang. He stood upon his feet and spoke at the moment of his birth. At five months of age he sat unsupported in the air, and at the moment of his conversion he was attacked by a legion of demons. He was visited by wise men, he was baptized, transfigured, performed miracles, rose from the dead, and on his ascension through the air to heaven he left his footprint on a mountain in Ceylon. The Hindu savior Krishna was born of a virgin six hundred years before Christ. A star shone at his birth, which took place in a cave. He was adored by cowherds, who recognized his greatness. 
he performed miracles, was crucified, and is to come to judge the earth. Christ died for mankind. So did Buddha and Krishna. Adonis, Osiris, Horus, and Tammuz, all virgin-born gods, were saviors and suffered death. Christ rose from the dead. So have Krishna and Buddha arisen from the dead and ascended into heaven. So did Lao Kium, Zoroaster, and Mithra. A star shone in the sky at the births of Krishna, Ramayu, Lao Tse, Moses, Quetzalcoatl, Ormuzd, Rama, Buddha, and others. Christ was born of a virgin, so was Krishna and Buddha. Lao Tse was also born of a virgin. Horus in Egypt was born of the virgin Isis. Isis, with the child Horus on her knee, was worshipped centuries before the Christian era, and was appealed to under the names of Our Lady, Queen of Heaven, Star of Heaven, Star of the Sea, Mother of God, and so forth. Hercules, Bacchus, and Perseus were gods born by mortal mothers. Zeus, father of the gods, visited Semel in the form of a thunderstorm, and she gave birth on the 25th of December to the great savior and deliverer Dionysus. Mithra was born of a virgin in a cave on the 25th of December. He was buried in a tomb from which he rose again. He was called savior and mediator and sometimes figured as a lamb. Osiris was also said to be born about the 25th of December. He suffered, died, and was resurrected. Hercules was miraculously conceived from a divine father and was everywhere invoked as savior. Minerva had a more remarkable birth than Eve. She sprang full-armed from the brow of Jupiter. He did this remarkable feat without even losing a rib. The Chinese Tien, the Holy One, died to save the world. In Mexico, Quetzalcoatl, the Savior, was the son of Chimalman, the Virgin Queen of Heaven. He was tempted, fasted forty days, was done to death, and his second coming was eagerly looked for by the natives. The Teutonic goddess Hertha was a virgin, and the sacred groves of Germany contained her image with a child in her arms. The Scandinavian goddess Frigga was a virgin who bore a son, Baldur, healer and savior of mankind. When one considers the similarity of these ancient pagan legends and beliefs with Christian traditions, if one believes with Justin Martyr, then indeed the devil must have been a very busy person to have caused these pagans to imitate for such long ages and in such widespread localities the Christian mysteries. Indeed, Edward Carpenter comments, One has only, instead of the word Jesus, to read Dionysus, or Krishna, or Hercules, or Osiris, or Attis, and instead of Mary, to insert Semel, or Devaki, or Alcmeni, or Neith, or Nona, and for Pontius Pilate, to use the name of any terrestrial tyrant who comes into the corresponding story. And lo, the creed fits in all particulars into the rites and worship of a pagan god. A legend stated that Plato, born of Perictione, 
a pure virgin, suffered an immaculate conception through the influences of Apollo, B.C. 426. The god declared to Ariston, to whom she was about to be married, the parentage of the child. St. Dominic, born A.D. 1170, was said to be the offspring of an immaculate conception. He was free from original sin and was regarded as the adopted son of the Virgin Mary. St. Francis, the compeer of St. Dominic, was born A.D. 1182. A prophetess foretold his birth. He was born in a stable. Angels sang forth peace and goodwill into the air, and one, in the guise of Simeon, bore him to baptism. The Egyptian trinities are well known. Thus, from Amun, by Maut, proceeds Conso. From Osiris, by Isis, proceeds Horus. From Nepth, by Sate, proceeds Anoke. The Egyptians had propounded the dogma that there had been divine incarnations, the fall of man, and redemption. In India, centuries before Christianity, we find the Hindu trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva. In the Institutes of Manu, a code of civil law as well as religious law, written about the ninth century before Christ, is found a description of creation, the nature of God, and rules for the duty of man in every station of life, from the moment of birth to death. Professor James T. Shotwell, when speaking of paganism, reminds us, Who of us can appreciate antique paganism? The gods of Greece or Rome are for us hardly more than the mutilated statues of them in our own museums, pitiable, helpless objects before the scrutiny and comments of a passing crowd. Venus is an armless figure from the Louvre. Dionysus does not mean to us divine possession, the gift of tongues, or immortality. Attis brings no salvation. But to antiquity, the pagan cults were no mockery. They were as real as Polynesian heathenism or Christianity today. James T. Shotwell, The Religious Revolution of Today it is seen therefore that from time immemorial man does not discover his gods but invents them he invents them in the light of his experience and endows them with capacities that indicate the stage of man's mental development religion is not the product of civilized man man inherits his god just as he inherits his physical qualities the idea of a supernatural being creating and governing this earth is a phantom born in the mind of the savage. If it had not been born in the early stages of man's mental development, it surely would not come into existence now. History proves that as the mind of man expands, it does not discover new gods, but that it discards them. It is not strange, therefore, that there has not been advanced a new major religious belief in the last thirteen hundred years. All modern religious conceptions, no matter how disguised, find their origin in the fear-stricken ignorance of the primitive savage. A Christian will admit that the gods of others are man-made, and that their creed is similar to the worship of the savage. He looks at their gods with the vision of a civilized being. But when he looks at his own god, he forgets his civilization. 
he relapses centuries of time, and his mental viewpoint is that of the savage. Christianity, with its primitive concepts, can make its adherents firm in the belief of great monstrosities. When its adherents believed that the Bible sanctioned the destruction of heretics and witches, they were certainly doing things from a Christian standpoint. It was this standpoint that justified an embittered denunciation of evolution at one time, and then recanting, adopting it as a part of the Bible teaching. When the Spaniards blotted out an entire civilization in South America, when Catholics butchered Protestants, or Protestants butchered Catholics, they were all justified from the Christian standpoint. Man has been living on this planet some 500,000 years. Jesus appeared less than 2,000 years ago to save mankind. What of those countless millions of men that died before Christ came to save the world from damnation? If the Christian creed that except a man believes in the Lord Jesus Christ he cannot be saved is maintained, then it must be that those millions of human beings who lived before Christ and had no chance to believe are in hell fire. It is probable that one of the factors that turned primitive man's attention away from his cruel and short earthly existence to the thought of a more lengthy and less cruel existence in a hereafter was the extreme uncertainty and short duration of his own life. And this primitive trend of thought that turns man's mind from the here and now to a contemplation of a mythical hereafter persists to this day, produces the same slavish resignation. This false release from the actualities consists a mental aberration which we see in the hysterical and weak-minded. When such an individual is confronted by problems that tax his mental strength, if that individual has not strength of mind to reason and to persevere so that he overcomes his environmental difficulties, he will seek an avenue of escape in a fanciful existence which the physician recognizes in hysteria and certain forms of mental disease. So, throughout the ages, man has sought release from the realities of his existence into a fanciful and pleasantly delusional flight into a hereafter. There is no salvation in that sickly obscurantism which attempts to evade realities by confusing itself about them. Safety lies only in clarity and the struggle for the light. No subliminal nor fringe of consciousness can rank in the intellectual life beside the burning focal center where the rays of knowledge converge. The hope must be in following reason, not in thwarting it. To turn back from it is not mysticism, it is superstition. No. We must be prepared to see the higher criticism destroy the historicity of the most sacred texts of the Bible. Psychology analyzed the phenomena of conversion on the basis of adolescent passion. Anthropology explained the genesis of the very idea of God. And where we can understand, it is a moral crime to cherish the ununderstood. James T. Shotwell, The Religious Revolution of Today Religious beliefs are clearly mental aberrations from which it is high time that the progress of knowledge should lead to a logical cure. Man is steadily overcoming and conquering his environment. 
the uncertainty of life and cruelty are much diminished as compared with the past ages. But man has not as yet fully utilized the means of an emancipating measure from his mental enslavement and fear of his environment. Chapman Cohen, in his Theism or Atheism, clearly states, We know that man does not discover God. He invents him. And an invention is properly discarded when a better instrument is forthcoming. Today, the hypothesis of God stands in just the same relation to the better life of today as the fire drill of the savage does to the modern method of obtaining a light. The belief in God may continue a while in virtue of the lack of intelligence of some or the carelessness of others and of the conservative character of the mass. But no amount of apologizing can make up for the absence of genuine knowledge, nor can the flow of the finest eloquence do aught but clothe in regal raiment the body of a corpse. Religion arose as a means of explanation of natural phenomena at a time when no other explanation of the origin of natural phenomena had been ascertained. God is always what Spinoza called it, the asylum of ignorance. When causes are unknown, God is brought forward. When causes are known, God retires into the background. In an age of ignorance, God is active. In an age of science, he is impotent. History attests this fact. The single and outstanding characteristic of the conception of God at all times and under all conditions is that it is the equivalent of ignorance. In primitive times, it is ignorance of the character of the natural forces that leads to the assumption of the existence of gods. And in this respect, the god idea has remained true to itself throughout. Even today, whenever the principle of God is invoked, a very slight examination is enough to show that the only reason for this being done is our ignorance of the subject before us. Chapman Cohen the belief in God is least questioned where civilization is lowest. It is called into the most serious question where civilization is most advanced. It is clear that had primitive man known what we know today about nature, the gods would never have been born. The suspicious feature must be pointed out that the belief in God owes its existence not to the trained and educated observation of civilized times, but to the uncritical reflection of the primitive mind. It has its origin there, and it would indeed be remarkable if, while in almost every other direction the primitive mind showed itself to be hopelessly wrong, in its interpretation of the world in this particular respect it has proved itself to be altogether right. Chapman Cohen. All intelligent men admit that human welfare depends upon our knowledge and our ability to harness the forces of nature. I myself, writes Llewellyn Powys, do not doubt that the good fortune of the human race depends more on science than on religion. In all directions the bigotry of the churches obstructs amelioration. As long as the majority of men rely upon supernatural interference, supernatural guidance, from a human point of view all is likely to be confusion. 
trusting in God rather than in man, it is in the nature of these blind worshippers to oppose every advance of human knowledge. It was they who condemned Galileo, who resisted Darwin, and who today deride the doctrines of Freud. Science has given us an account of the operation of the universe, Son, God, and investigation has also given us a clear conception of the evolution of all religious beliefs from the crude conceptions of the savage to the but little altered form of the modern conception. If we are to regard the God idea as an evolution which began in the ignorance of primitive man, it would seem clear that no matter how refined or developed the idea may become, it can rest on no other or sounder basis than which is presented to us in the psychology of primitive man. Each stage of theistic belief grows out of the preceding stage, and if it can be shown that the beginning of this evolution arose in a huge blunder, I quite fail to see how any subsequent development can convert this unmistakable blunder into a demonstrable truth. Chapman Cohen Men of today are trying to force themselves to believe that there must be something true in that which had been believed by so many great and pious men of old. But it is in vain. Intellect has outgrown faith. They are aware of the fallacy of their opinions, yet angry that another should remind them of it. And these men, who today are secretly skeptics, are loudest in their public denunciation of others who publicly announce their skepticism. In ancient Greece, when the philosophers came into prominence, Zeus was superseded by the air, and Poseidon by the water. In modern times, all hitherto supernatural events are being explained by physical laws. Plato regarded it as a patriotic duty to accept the public faith, although he full well knew the absurdities of that faith. Today, there are many Platos that hold to the same conviction. The freethinkers hold to the view of Xenophanes, who denounced the public faith as an ancient blunder, which had been converted by time into a national imposture. All religion is a delusion which transfers the motives and thoughts of men to those who are not men. No ecclesiastic has as yet offered a satisfactory answer as to why there has been a marvelous disappearance of the working of miracles, and why human actions alone are now to be seen in this world of ours. We are witnessing today what happened in the Roman Empire during the decline of polytheism. Draper states, Between that period during which a nation has been governed by its imagination, and that in which it submits to reason, there is a melancholy interval. The constitution of man is such that, for a long time after he has discovered the incorrectness of the ideas prevailing around him, he shrinks from openly emancipating himself from their dominion and, constrained by the force of circumstances, he becomes a hypocrite, publicly applauding what his private judgment condemns. Where a nation is making this passage, so universal do these practices become that it may be truly said hypocrisy is organized. It is possible that whole communities might be found living in this deplorable state. And indeed, in our own country, we are witnessing an example of this very thing.
religion has led to widespread hypocrisy. Our religious influences have created a race of men mentally docile and obedient to the dictates of tyrannical ecclesiasticism. It has created a fear of truth, and our minds are still brutish and puerile in our methods of reasoning. Credulity has led to stultification, and stultification of the mind is the bitter fruit which we have been reaping for thousands of years. There are probably hundreds of thousands of men and women in these United States that give lip service to their creed, but deep in the recesses of their minds a small voice cries to them and shames them, for as soon as they reason, they become skeptics. How can we know the actual number of earthlings that are skeptics? It is impossible in our present state of development. Religious persecution today is just as active as it was during the Middle Ages. Surely a man is not burned at the stake for his skepticism in this age, but is he not done to death? If the grocer, the butcher, the doctor, the lawyer, the scholar, the businessman were to boldly announce his skepticism, what would happen to him? The answer is well known to all. Immediately, each of his religious customers would take it upon himself to act as a personal inquisition. The skeptic would be shunned socially, he would be ignored, his wares would be sought after elsewhere, and he would suffer. His wife, his family, his children would suffer with him, for our economic scheme makes the would-be skeptic dependent upon the whims of the majority believers. He is forced to hold his tongue, or else is tortured. Are not the wants of his family, the hunger, and ostracism torture? Thus thousands are forced into hypocrisy. Many others, although they have outgrown all fear of the god of orthodoxy, the fear of the god of social pressure remains. There are embodied in all creeds three human impulses, fear, conceit, and hatred, and religion has given an air of respectability to these passions. Religion is a malignant disease born of fear, a cancer which has been eating into the vitals of everything that is worthwhile in our civilization, and by its growth obstructing those advances which make for a more healthful life. Morally and intellectually, socially and historically, religion has been shown to be a pernicious influence. Some of these influences falling into these classifications have been considered in previous chapters. The modern Christian, in his amusing ignorance, asserts that Christianity is now mild and rationalistic, ignoring the fact that all its so-called mildness and rationalism is due to the teaching of men who in their own day were persecuted by all Orthodox Christians. Historically, churches have stood on the side of the powers that be. They have defended slavery or have held their tongues about it. They have maintained serfdom and kept serfs. They have opposed every movement undertaken for the liberation of the masses of men. The ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity are the creations of the camps of their enemies, of the rationalists of the 18th century, and the liberals and socialists of the 19th century. 
They have defended and condoned the industrial exploitation of children. They have fought bitterly the enfranchisement of women. They have justified unjust war. They have fought with book and bill and candle and faggot every new great step in the advancement of science, from gravitation to evolution. Wardens, ever since Constantine, gave the schools of antiquity into the keeping of the Christian bishops, of the education of the people. They have fought with all their power the establishment of free public schools and the spread of literacy and knowledge among the people. Horace M. Callan, Why Religion? If Christianity has made any progress in the assimilation of doctrines that are less barbarous than heretofore, they have been effected in spite of the most vigorous resistance, and solely as a result of the onslaught of free thinkers. Throughout the ages, when a thinking man had questioned the how and why of any secular problem, so long as that problem had no direct or indirect bearing upon religion, or upon any branch of knowledge that was assumed to be infallibly foretold in the Bible, that man was unmolested. The problems falling into the above classification were extremely small due to the strongly defended theological lunacy that asserted itself in the declaration that all knowledge, both spiritual and material, was contained in the Bible as interpreted by the Church. Man, however, when he broached his religious doubts, was regarded as the most sinful of beings and it was forbidden him to question and yield to the conclusions that his mind evolved. Think of the irony and tragedy of this self-enslavement of the human mind. There is one characteristic that man prides himself as having apart from all lower animals, his ability to reason and to think. Is it his superior musculature and brute strength that has placed man upon his present pinnacle of advanced civilization? Or is it his mental development, his mind, that has taught him to harness the forces of nature? Has not his mind so coordinated his movements that he has enslaved those forces of nature to be his aid? And yet, if mind is one thing that has enabled man to pull himself out of the morass of brute life, why has it been that man himself has been so persistently decrying and degrading the efforts of that mind? The answer is that religion has provided the shackles and securely and jealously enslaved the mind. With the aid of his religious beliefs, man has been ensnared into a mental prison in which he has been an all-too-willing captive. Surely it is easier to believe than to think. Napoleon, himself a skeptic, was cognizant of this slave philosophy. What is it, he is reported to have asked, that makes the poor man think it is quite natural that there are fires in my castle when he is dying of cold, that I have ten coats in my wardrobe while he goes naked, that at each of my meals enough is served to feed his family for a week? It is simply religion which tells him that in another life I shall be only his equal, and that he actually has more chance of being happy than I. Yes, we must see to it that the doors of the churches are open to all, and that it does not cost the poor man much to have prayers said on his tomb. 
How well the ecclesiastical psychologists have grasped this fact, and how well they have fashioned a strong chain for the mind out of this weakness of human minds. Church and government have been well aware of this psychology and have fought constantly the spread of free thought literature to the masses. Professor Burry, in his History of Freedom of Thought, speaking of England, tells us, If we take the cases in which the civil authorities have intervened to repress the publication of unorthodox opinions during the last two centuries, we find that the object has always been to prevent the spread of free thought among the masses. Think but a moment how well the above is borne out by the attitude of the church in the stand that it took during the Middle Ages, when she prohibited the reading of the Bible by any person except her clergy, when she prohibited the printing of all books except those that she had approved of books that minutely agreed in all details with the fantastic fables of her Bible were the only ones allowed to be printed. The Church also strenuously objected to the printing of Bibles in the languages of the masses. That most efficient shackle to the mind, that precept that there was no knowledge, whether material or spiritual, that was not contained in the Bible, how strenuously the Church upheld that doctrine. And in our own day, the ridiculous assumption that mysteries, a special form of ignorance, are the special province of the church. Considering these few examples, as well as all ecclesiastical endeavor, no rational mind can escape the fact that that primeval curse, religion, has had for its object, down through the centuries, the sadistic desire to enslave and trample on the mind of man. It has been a defensive measure on the part of the church, for she well recognizes that once the mind is free, it will free itself of the shackles of religion also. Nor is this all. I execrate the enslavement of the mind of our young children by the ecclesiastics. Is anything so pitiful to behold as the firm grasp that the church places on the mind of the youngest of children? Children at play, children of four and five years of age will be heard to mention with fearful tones various religious rites such as baptism and confirmation and to perform in their manner these rites with their dolls fear fear instilled into the minds of the impressionable children think of the degradation that the ecclesiastics practice when they insist that from the time a child is out of its infancy its instruction shall be placed in their hands they take the most precious possession of man his mind and mold it to their desire the mind of a child is plastic it is like a moist piece of clay and they mold it and form it to their desire Warped and poured into the ecclesiastic mold of fear, the mind of the child becomes set and fixed with the years. Then it is too late for rational thinking, as far as religious matters go. The mind of the adult is firmly set in the form that the ecclesiastic has fashioned for him in his youth. It is impossible for the adult so taught to reason clearly and rationally concerning his religion. The mold is too strong. The clay has set. Reason cannot penetrate into that hardened form. 
That is why it is almost impossible for the adult who has been exposed to this mental molding from his infancy to break away from the fears and superstitions learned on his mother's knee. If Christianity, Hebrewism, Mohammedanism, or any other creed is true, its truth must be more apparent at the age of twenty-five than it is at the age of five. Why does the ecclesiastic not leave off his advances until the child reaches a mature age, an age when he can reason? Then, if theism is true, he can accept it with a reasoning mind, not a blindly faithful mind. The theist realizes, however, that belief is at one pole, reason at the other. Belief, creed, religion are ideations of the primitive mind and the mind of the child. Reason is the product of mature thought. Schopenhauer remarked that the power of religious dogma, when inculated early, is such as to stifle conscience, compassion, and finally every feeling of humanity. It is an undeniable fact that if the clergy would but leave their tainted hands off the minds of our children until they would have reached a mature age, there would be no religious instinct. Religious instinct is a myth. Give me but two generations of men who have not been subjected to this religious influence in childhood, and there will be a race of atheists. The ecclesiastic has from earliest times taken the standpoint that the masses of people are of crude susceptibility and clumsy intelligence, sordid in their pursuits and sunk in drudgery, and religion provides the only means of proclaiming and making them feel the high import of life. Schopenhauer Thus the theist is led to the conclusion that the end justifies the means. Theism is a hypothesis which, among other things, attempts an explanation of the universe. The theist recognizes a creator who created the universe and is responsible for its operation. The atheist clearly perceives that the assumption of a creator does not advance him in the slightest degree towards the solution of the mysterious problem of the universe. The oft-repeated question still admits of no answer. Who created the Creator? It is an absurd answer to reply that the Creator created himself. Yet, even if this is granted, may not the universe have created itself? If the theist puts forward the statement that God has always existed, the atheist may well reply that if God has always existed, why can he not say that the universe has always existed? The atheist is not concerned with the creation of the universe. To him, it presents a problem which is beyond the comprehension of his present mental capacities. He comprehends the fact of its being, and that is as far as he or any rational mind can go. Atheism confines itself to a refutation of theism, and avoids the theistic fallacy of assuming without any proofs or reasonable arguments to substantiate the assumption of an intelligent, omnipotent, omniscient, anthropomorphic and anthropocentric creator. The theistic assumption has but retarded the advance of practical knowledge and prepared the soil for superstition and the countless terrors of religious beliefs. Atheism, as far as a rational explanation of the universe is covered, 
although it does not offer an explanation of the ultimate or the riddle of the universe, does insist that any view held be one that shall be based on truth and conformity to reality. It further maintains that if a view be propagated, it should be held in the same position that any scientific proposition is held. It must be open to verification. If it be verified as any scientific theory is verified, it will be accepted in part or in toto, and be proven to be true or displaced by a closer approximation to the truth. To certain types of men, there may be a negative attitude expressed in this credo, which leaves the mind unsatisfied. This is but an emotional bias, and has nothing to do whatsoever with the attainment of truth. A delusion may be more comforting than the truth, but that does not necessitate the conclusion that a delusion may be of more ultimate benefit than a constant striving for the truth. It has often been said that atheism, in that negative aspect, places a question mark upon our problems. However, while a question mark may indicate a negative value, it may also prove to be a mental provocative. A period placed at the end of a problem denotes that it has been definitely solved. In connection with the origin of the universe, no period can be placed at the end of that problem and since we are awaiting the solution, it is much more to the interest of further advances to place the question mark there than to consider the matter solved. Surely sufficient instances have been enumerated in this discussion to show the stultification and retardation that ensues when an institution maintains an insistence that a problem be held to conform in any of its explanatory aspects to a preconceived infallible statement or considers a problem not to exist, or closes its eyes to the inconsistencies in an explanation which is being maintained by mental persuasion and force. When the Bible was considered as containing the answer to all our problems, we have seen what the result was. If atheism places a question mark upon the problem of the universe, it does so in a constructive manner for that mark points to the direction in which a logical solution may be possible. Such is the mental attitude of the scientist. He places an interrogation point upon his problems, and that mark is the impetus, the mental stimulus, that leads him on to take infinite pains in his labors, and as time passes, each question mark is replaced by knowledge. It is knowledge and knowledge alone reason, not faith, that furnishes the period. It was Haeckel who asserted that the most dangerous of the three great enemies of reason and knowledge is not malice, but ignorance, or perhaps indolence. The question mark as applied to a problem that is recognizably not solved is a signpost to the knowledge that time must bring. The spurious period placed at the end of a problem is the death warrant for that problem, and there it must lie, devitalized by ignorance and indolence. It has often been affirmed that what we see in this universe is phenomena, and all explanations but interpret the manifestations of these phenomena. What is in the back of and beyond these phenomena may never be known, and if it be known, would be of no further use to us. 
It is equally as true that if we but see phenomena and our mental capacities deny us a conception of the reality beyond phenomena, yet we have a growing knowledge of the laws that govern these phenomena. And it is a comprehensive knowledge of these invariable laws that govern the universe that are of universal value. These laws have been ascertained by the questioning mental attitude and not by futile reliance on faith. Human knowledge has expanded immensely in the last fifty years, and this by the purely scientific method, the materialistic method, and the questioning attitude. The value of these findings, when they can be converted into practical applications in industry, are well known to all. We have added nothing to our store of knowledge except by the exercise of our mentality and reason. The application of the scientific method to the workings of the mind has made more progress in explaining the mind in the brief period of fifty years than philosophical deductions had made in the past two thousand years. Every new fact that has been discovered has fitted into the mechanistic scheme of the universe, and not one new fact has been disclosed that suggested anything beyond nature. The theistic interpretation of the universe has been completely discredited by the scientific investigations. Science has brought to the confines of invariable laws multitudes of problems that had hitherto been supposed to point to spiritual interference. Theology has been driven out of the open spaces of reason and still persists in clinging to the twilight zone of the present unknown only to be driven from its precarious position constantly by our increasing knowledge and with increasing rapidity from shadow to shadow. There has been an increasing tendency shown by physicists to consider that matter and energy are interchangeable, and that the one ultimate reality is energy. If this be so, we are still dealing with an ultimate that is a material reality. The Nobel Prize in Medicine for the year 1932 was awarded to two British investigators, Sir Charles Scott Sherrington, Professor of Physiology at Oxford University, and Dr. Edgar Douglas Adrian, Professor of Physiology at Cambridge University. Their researches seem to have settled definitely a problem that has long been a bone for contention. Nerve energy has been shown conclusively to be of an electric type of energy. The old question of whether mind was part of the material world has been shown by these experiments to be answered in the affirmative. There is no duality, mind and matter are one, and mind is but a special property of highly specialized matter. End of Part 1 of Chapter 19